my name is Brooke. I am the designer on staff here at Central. And I know typically, maybe at churches, the designer doesn't really uh, give the message in the morning, but we're rebels. We're rebels here at Central. You know, we like to practice what we preach. So, um, no, but I love uh, studying God's word. And so I'm excited to bring that to you this morning. We have been in this series called Rebels and Reformers. And we've had five weeks so far packed with um, looking at different people throughout the Bible. We started with Jeremiah, the prophet. Then we looked at David, who was a shepherd turned king. And then Ruth, who was an immigrant to Israel. And then Josiah, who was an eight-year-old turned king. And then last week, um, Gary and Kristen taught on Miriam, Moses' sister. And um, I think out of all the application points we've covered in these last five weeks, the one that is really just like... I grabbed onto was that last week Kristen was mentioning some ways that we could be rebellious and wearing strappy Tevas with socks. Well, I don't own Tevas, but I do have Birkenstocks. And as you can see, I wore my socks with them this morning. If you're listening to our podcast and you can't see what I'm doing or wearing, you can Google an image. I'm sure there's stuff online, but you know, I'm pretty rebellious here. So, um, but yeah, these socks are probably coming off right after service since it is July and it's hot. Um, yeah, so to be real, we all know the last five weeks has been filled with much more than um, wearing socks with sandals, but um, so we're going to look more into what that is, uh, what being a rebel and a reformer looks like, and we are going to do that through studying the life of John this morning, and I love John. He is all about love. That was his big message, and um, I think it was really the first book, um, When I was a kid and I decided I was going to read the Bible for myself, you start at the beginning, right? In Genesis. So I don't know how old I was, like maybe four. No, probably not. Um, But uh, I was advanced, you know? Um, No, I was probably like eight or nine. And I was like, okay, I'm going to read, start in Genesis. I think I did make it all the way through Genesis and into Exodus before I gave up. Because I was like, yeah, this is like, there's way too many names I don't know how to say. And I'm not following. So stopped and then in middle school or somewhere along the way I was like heard oh start with the gospel that's like an easier place to start and um so I picked up I think my bible had a reading plan that said start with John so I was like okay great so I started in John I probably highlighted like the entire book like what stood out more after the I was done was what wasn't highlighted so I had to get a new bible um no but uh yeah, so we're going to look at John, and I don't know how familiar you are with Scripture. I mean, there's no requirement for that um, to be here, but just as a heads up, maybe, or to clarify what you've already read, there are a lot of Johns in Scripture. There is John, the disciple of Jesus, who wrote the Gospel of John. There's John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin and wore, like, camel hair and ate locusts and wild honey and was kind of weird. Um, and then there's uh, Mark, who wrote one of the other Gospels, who's actually John Mark, there's Simon and Andrew, a couple of disciples, their dad, whose name's John. There's probably more that I don't even know about, but um, yeah, and there's a lot of James too, but thankfully just one Jesus, so keep that clear. Um, but the man we're going to talk about today is the disciple John, and he wrote the fourth gospel, and what, I think what typically throws people off is that in his own gospel, he never calls himself John. Um, But in the second chapter, he starts talking about John the Baptist, who's a different guy. So it's kind of confusing, but by the end of today, you'll have it down. Um, John, disciple of Jesus, he had a brother named James, but that's not Jesus' brother James, who wrote the book of James. 
Like, seriously, when Jesus called Peter to be a disciple, he changed his name to Peter from Simon. Like, why couldn't Jesus change John's name to, like, Alfred or something and just clear up everything? So we're going to attempt, and I'm going to try to paint a picture for you this morning of who this guy is, who John was at the time of him following Jesus, um, because he didn't start being all about love. He was actually known as John, son of thunder, which may be a cool nickname if you're like a hockey player, but I don't think for a disciple. So let's pray before we really dive in and get super confused about who's who and ask for some clarity this morning. God, we are thankful that we can be here to hear from you this morning. God, I do pray that um, just as we study the life of John, um, as I did for myself, I really didn't see John that much. I saw you. And so I just pray that again this morning as we dive into your word and John's writing and even his life, that we would see you. We would see the love that you had for John and the love you have for us. So we just pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so like I said, John Disciple wrote the fourth gospel. He wrote the first, second, third books of John, and he wrote Revelation. And not to mention he's talked about in like all the other gospels. So there's a bunch of texts we can pull from. So I'm not going to read all of it necessarily as I like tell some of these stories, but it's just going to show up on screen so you can um, see where that happens in scripture and where it's recorded. But um, scholars estimate that John was probably the youngest disciple, like maybe 12, 13, some say even younger than that. Um, a couple reasons why in scripture when it uh, talks about him, they say James and his brother John. So he's always listed as like the other brother. Um, and that kind of just indicates that he was probably younger than James. And then also, and you might know this from like Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, but John is that disciple who sits right next to Jesus and is kind of like leaning against him. Um, but that position in, at the table during the last supper, during a Passover meal would have been for the youngest of the family. And so, um, yeah, it's believed that John was probably the youngest out of all the disciples. So John and his brother James were given the nickname by Jesus himself, actually, Sons of Thunder. But now we kind of know John as the beloved or John, the disciple who Jesus loved, um, that's how he calls himself in his own gospel. John says, I am the one Jesus loved. And he's the guy that wrote John 3.16. He's the one that uses the word love 72 times in his writings alone, which is like 30% of the times it's used in the New Testament. But he was originally called the son of thunder. A couple books I read studying for this. One is by this guy, Dr. Daryl Delhousey, I think is how you say his name. But he says it like this. John was not a quiet, passive youth who displayed only qualities of love and humility. He was a ball of fire, armed with a short fuse who held passionate, deep-seated convictions. God would have to perform a miracle of transformation for John to become the disciple of love. And I can definitely relate to this, because I think anyone who knew me as a youth, or even today, would not say I'm passive, unless they're saying passive-aggressive. Um, and... Uh, you know, like I'm not the quiet one who you're like, what's your opinion on this? I, like you have to dig it out. No, you will know what my opinion is on whatever we're talking about. Um, but I just think that that much passion can never be passive. And John was super passionate. And as we enter into John's gospel, we see early on, I mean, he's the youngest of the disciples, but he also didn't even start with just following Jesus. In the beginning of John's gospel, he is referencing John the Baptist, and it's 
this scene is that John the Baptist is there preaching, and he has his own disciples, right? And then Jesus walks by, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the guys following John are like, oh, that's the guy we're actually waiting for? So they leave John and go follow Jesus. And in one of the uh, gospel accounts, we find out that one of those two disciples was Andrew, and the other one is believed to have been John. And so as a kid, um, Jewish boy, he would have grown up like they all do, learning the um, first five books of the Bible the, and just all the Old Testament. He would have gone to school and had all of this knowledge and known that there was this Messiah who was supposed to be coming. And John was passionate about that. He didn't just like, oh, cool, went to school, now I'm going to go fish with my dad because that was like their trade of the day. And, you know, he wanted more. He was like, who is this Messiah? He's coming like, this guy's preaching about him, John the Baptist, so I'm going to go listen to him. And then he's like, no, this is the guy. So he goes after Jesus. You know, he wanted something more. And that's, it's the same thing we pray for your kids as they go to Sunday school here, youth group here. You know, it's like, it's not just, yeah, I'm going to my like Jesus class. You know, we pray that there'd be something in them that ignites, that stirs, that they would want more of what this is that we're talking about. But early on for John, this kind of unrefined passion didn't really lead him well. Um, his deep-seated convictions kind of blurted out at the wrong times. And there's a couple stories that we can see this in. Um, the first is Jesus and all his disciples are traveling through different towns. And at one point, they're making their way towards Jerusalem for that last week before Jesus is going to be crucified. And um, as they're like going through different areas, they come to a town, a Samaritan town. And if you know anything about the history of Jews and Samaritans, they did not get along. There was a lot of like racial tension. And so um, the people in that town find out they're trying to pass through to get to Jerusalem. And they're like, nope, you can't come through our town. And so John and his brother James actually asked Jesus, they're like, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume this village? Like, they won't let us pass through. They don't know that you're the Messiah. Like, and Jesus was like, whoa. Like, it says he rebukes them, so it was probably harsher than that. But he was like, dude, take a chill pill. Not what I came to do. Like, burn up towns. But um, so we have that account of James and John. And then um, oftentimes, as Jesus was teaching his disciples and talking to them, he kind of gave them a warning and let them know, like, hey, this is what's going to be happening to me. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get um, crucified. And then I'll rise again three days later. But so he told this to his disciples a few different times. And one of the accounts, like it was right after Jesus just told this to his disciples that James and John actually have the audacity to ask Jesus this question. We find it in Mark 10. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I think skeptically, Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Like <laughs> one of the uh, authors that I read, he calls them a pair of self-seeking disciples. Like, ouch, I don't want to be known as a self-seeking disciple. Like, the word disciple means you're seeking Jesus, not yourself. But these guys just did not understand, like, what they were asking to sit at the right hand of God, like, in his glory. 
So John was definitely kind of rough around the edges when he first started as a disciple. Um, So how did this boy who kind of was entitled and arrogant, thinking, yeah, I could sit at Jesus' right hand, um, how did he become this man who loved God more than anything and knew how much God loved him? We're going to find it in as we continue to look through what happened those three years that John was following Jesus. There's a bunch of different accounts. Um, we know that John, his brother James, and Peter, those three disciples, were kind of the uh, closer-knit disciples to Jesus. They got to experience a few more things that the rest of the disciples didn't get to do. And we see that they were the three disciples that Jesus invited up to the mountain of transfiguration, where they saw him like look like lightning and talk to Moses and Elijah. They were the three disciples that actually got to go inside the room and watch as Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Um, they were the three disciples that Jesus asked to come uh, further into the Garden of Gethsemane and pray with him the night before he was, or, or the night he was arrested and before he was crucified. And then we see John and Peter follow Jesus as he was arrested, and Peter kind of hangs out outside the court. John goes all the way inside. He's like, I want to know what's happening. He's the only disciple that's actually named to be standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus breathed his last breath. He's the disciple that Jesus gave uh, kind of ownership of his mother to, asking him to take care of her. And three days later, when Mary came and told the guys that the tomb was empty, it says that John outran Peter to get there first, but then kind of hung back and didn't go inside. I don't know if he was worried what he might find, if Jesus would still be in there, and he would be disappointed. But he wasn't. Peter went in. He's like, it's okay. You can come in. He's not here. So John experienced all of these things, but he also heard Jesus teach about love. He heard Jesus' reply when that lawyer asked Jesus, hey, what's the greatest commandment in the whole Bible? And the Old Testament has a ton of laws and different things. So this lawyer's like, yeah, what's the, what's the one thing I need to do? And Jesus replies, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. At the Last Supper, John records it in his own gospel what he heard Jesus uh, give them a new commandment. And it's in John 13, 34 through 35. It says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But John didn't just hear Jesus preach these words. He wasn't transformed by just hearing this stuff. He actually saw Jesus live this out. He saw Jesus live this kind of love. He saw it when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus late at night. And that's where we even find that John 3.16, the most famous Bible verse of all time. I'm sure you could all quote it right now. Um, he saw Jesus love the Samaritan woman at the well. He saw Jesus love the woman caught in adultery when he stepped in from her getting stoned to death. He saw Jesus love himself and the other disciples when Jesus prayed with them before he was crucified. And after all of this, everything John saw, witnessed, heard from Jesus, it boiled down to one thing for him. And it's John's other 3.16. In 1 John 3.16, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 
See, we were called to love one another. That's what the new command was, right? Love one another as I have loved you, which means laying down our life for one another. Love one another appears nine times in John's writing. It's three times alone in that commandment in John 13. And you see, it's actually really easy to be a rebel today. It's really easy to rebel against what the world says. If we are uh, a Christian and trying to live the way the Bible tells us to love people, it's, we don't have to think that hard. Just by obeying God, we're going to rebel against the world because it's so opposite from the values that it talks about. Because the world tells us to hoard up our money because you never know when the next stock market's going to crash or social security won't come through. But we rebel against that. We say, no, like I'm going to be generous with my money because I believe that God loves me so much and that he sent his son to die for me. Everything I have is his, so it's not even mine to begin with. And the world says that truth is relative and loving people looks like never disagreeing with them unless they're in politics or famous or just really on the other side of the screen. But we rebel against that. We say, no, we're not going to let people just live in this dark, confusing world, hurting and wondering what is true and not knowing where to go when we're sitting on the sidelines with like this map and this truth that Jesus loves you and no, Jesus died for them too. He loves them. He told us to love them. So we present the truth to them, not in judgment, but just in love, in an effort to throw a life raft towards them. We know we can't save them. Jesus is the one that saves them, but we can make an introduction. We can take time out of our schedules because we know that Jesus gives us every breath we breathe, and so our time and our schedules really aren't ours. They're his. So we can take time and go help our friends move houses or watch their kids so they can go out on a date night or sit in the waiting room with them as they are waiting for a prognosis or go grab a drink with them to celebrate that new job they just got. We lay down our lives for one another because that's what Jesus did. And that is the most rebellious act of love that we could ever partake in. The world tells us that it's all about us, but we say, no, it's all about Jesus. John tells us, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And maybe you're thinking, I don't know how I can live like that. Like, sometimes I feel like I'm a good friend, and sometimes I'm not so selfish with my time or my money, but I feel like more often than not, I fail, like way more than I succeed you guys, John wanted to call down fire from heaven and consume an entire village of people. Like, he asked to sit at the right hand of God. And now he doesn't even identify himself by name in his own gospel. He just calls himself the disciple Jesus loves. And it's not out of arrogance. God would never let John get away with that kind of arrogance and write a gospel. God wanted us to see how John saw himself now through the love of Jesus because it's always and forever about Jesus. One of the other books I read, um, Beth Moore wrote on John, the beloved disciple, and I could not recommend a book more. I forgot to put it in the sermon notes, so I apologize. But um, yeah, if you want to study on John uh, further, it's a great book. She puts it like this. She says, somewhere along the way, John, the son of thunder, forsook ambition for affection. 
So we are called to love one another and to love God, right? Jesus said that's the two greatest commandments. That's the Christian life. And I know we're always looking for that like magic formula, like how to live this Christian life. And actually I have an answer for you this morning. So if you're ready, take down this note. Like John, we have to know, to know deep down to our core how much Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves you, this I know, for he gave up his life so that you could be made right with God and have eternal life with him. Jesus loves you, this I know, for his sacrifice covered your sin and my sin, took away our shame, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John, the son of thunder, became John the beloved because he knew how much Jesus loved him. Brooke, the designer, the sister, the daughter, the passive-aggressive, the passionate, becomes Brooke, the beloved. And I don't know what name you find yourself under today. If you call yourself this or you think other people view you as this, I don't know if you think you're the son or daughter of the alcoholic or a child of divorce, but that's not the name that God sees you under. God has a new name for you, and it's beloved, John knew this because he experienced the love of Jesus. So we can't just come to church and know things about God. We have to experience him. A really small way, I experienced him just this week. I was running over to Chipotle to grab lunch because I think everyone on staff eats there at least once a week. So if anyone from Chipotle is listening, you can sponsor us as a church. We'll be happy to do that for you. Um, but I was running over there, grabbing lunch. I got to the register to pay, and this girl who I don't know um, was like, do you go to Central? And she's probably going to be really embarrassed that she's hearing this on our podcast now, but I was like, yeah. She's like, yeah, I haven't been there in a while. I go to another church now, but she's like, I heard you teach. She's like, it really encouraged me. It was really like, and I was just like, oh my gosh, like, I'm teaching again this week. Like, thank you so much. Guys, God loves his kids. Like, he sends random strangers to encourage us, even if we don't think we need it. Jesus loves me, and Jesus loves you. And we might think Jesus loves me, this I know, is a kid song. Maybe it is, but it's a gospel song. And if you want a practical application from today, just sing that song to yourself, like, multiple times a day, because we need to be reminded how much Jesus loves us. Because it's only out of this love, out of knowing how much we're loved by God, that we can lay down our lives for one another and love others in that kind of radical way. John knew this too, and so did Jesus. Jesus even says in John 15, 9, it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus loved out of the love he received from the Father. And then John says the same for us. It says, We love because he first loved us. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. John walked with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. He followed him into court and stood at the foot of the cross when it says that Jesus was beaten so that, to a point that he was unrecognizable. And maybe for other people, but I don't think so, not for John. John knew exactly who he was standing in front of. He knew he was standing at the foot of love himself, witnessing the greatest act of love that would ever unfold. And so it's as simple and as hard as that. To know how much Jesus loves us, to know that Jesus loves you, and to live out of that overflow. 
That's how we can give and love without end because Jesus has an endless supply of love for us. We can talk about a reforming act. And I've heard Gary say often that the best thing we can offer someone else is our transforming self. Lisa Bevere says, transformation is not measured by the truth we know, but is reflected in the truth we live. We have to let the love of Jesus transform us. John was transformed by the love of Jesus. That's how he reformed the world around him. And we are called to be reformers and rebels, and not just by wearing socks with sandals, but not by having perfect church attendance. We are called to love one another because Christ loved us. In order to reform the world, we have to first be transformed. I think sometimes we think about reforms or rebellions that it's this big flashy like one act like pow everything's changed but change doesn't really happen that way it's a slower process change that lasts anyways you know slavery wasn't finished with one signature racism didn't end with one march the church reformation didn't end with one like time that martin luther nailed his theses to the church door which may or may not even even happened You know, if we want to reform our cities or our church, our world around us, we have to start by, as an individual, being transformed. It always starts with individuals' hearts changing because reform that happens is really just comprised of a bunch of individuals' transformations. And maybe you're not that reformer you wished you were today. But if Jesus can change John, he can change you and me. And he's never disappointed in our trying. We're not perfect, and on this side of heaven, we're not going to be. Transformation is an ongoing, continual process, so there's nothing to wait for. Just go out and try. Try and love one another, accepting that Jesus loves you. Years ago, when I was mulling over this topic in my mind, God put this idea in my head that before I would speak to someone, kind of this challenge for like a week, I tried it. Before I would talk to someone, interact with someone, in my head I would say, Jesus loves you. He died for you. And then I would speak out of that knowledge, speak out of that truth. And so we're going to end also with communion, kind of another practice, practical way of remembering this, because before we can say Jesus loves you and he died for you, we have to know Jesus loves me. He died for me. And that's really what communion allows us to remember. In Romans 5.8, it says that he died for us while we were still sinners. That is like the greatest hope, I think, that was ever written. Because it means no matter how you came in this morning, if you believe in Jesus or you don't yet, he died for you. Like right now, how you currently are. His love covers us just as we are. He died for John while he was still that passionate, zealous kid. And he died for me and for you before we even knew his name because he knew ours. So let's talk to this God, praise him and thank him for this outrageous, rebellious act of love. Because as much as we can quote John 3.16, maybe it's become a little bit monotonous to us, It is the most rebellious thing man has ever seen. That God, the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the Alpha Omega beginning and end, so loved the world, he gave his son. 
He gave his son to die on the cross to love us in the most rebellious way so we could have life with him forever. So let's pray. God, how could we ever thank you enough for this love that you so lavishly pour out on us? You so love the world. You sent your son Jesus that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. You inspired your disciple, John, with these words, with this truth, and you also inspired him to write that you came to give us life and life abundantly, writing all this that we would believe in Jesus and make our joy complete. So I pray now in this space and these next few moments that your Holy Spirit would bury that truth so deep within us that we could not help but know how much you love us so we could love others in the same way because that's the abundant life. That is complete joy.